Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, it's great to have you on the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We're a bit bleary-eyed. We're more than a little bit surprised, but we're going to break it down as best we can here today, starting with the bad, big surprise, uh, some good, and uh, certainly some crazy as a result of what we know so far in the uh, 2022 midterm elections. Uh, There are still some races outstanding, which could and will determine the control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, We are recording a little bit after noon Eastern time, so as it stands right now, it's Republicans 49, Democrats 48 in the Senate, with Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia still to be determined. Georgia likely heading to a runoff in a few weeks. Republicans still expected to take the majority in the House, albeit by a much narrower margin than originally suggested, and I'm not even sure we can guarantee that's going to happen, although it still seems more likely than not. And then in terms of the governor's races, well, we'll get into that a little bit more in the good martini because that was one of the brighter spots. But uh, in terms of the competitive governor's races, uh, not so good. Uh, Not a lot of tight races going our way in that category. So, uh, Jim, on the Senate side so far, it's real simple. There's been one flip. It was Fetterman beating Oz in Pennsylvania, called quite a bit earlier than a lot of people suspected. And then in the other races around the country, we just didn't get it done in a lot of ways, but we're still waiting on those three other ones potentially to see what will happen. So giant missed opportunities uh, also on the House side. And so I don't know what stands out to you most. We'll get to the good news in the second martini. But in terms of the disappointments of the night, there's plenty to choose from. Where do you start? Well, I think if, as you say accurately, it's conceivable Republicans in these last few races could salvage a decent year out of this. Um, They only needed six seats to win control of the House, and it looks like they're probably going to get that. The GOP House majority, though, is probably going to be significantly smaller smaller than they expected. I had it at 23 seat gain, and that looks over optimistic right now. Um, Looks like it's going to be probably in the teens, again, enough to give them the majority, but not anything special even when you account for the high floor and the limited number of competitive races. Uh, In the Senate, you know, if they can pull through in that runoff, if they go to a runoff in Georgia and can win that, if Laxalt holds on in Nevada, then maybe it's not so bad. That said, you know, Republicans thought they were in the neighborhood, you know, 54 was, was, you know, not out of the range of possibility. 51, 52. And it looks like if Republicans win the Senate, they will do so by the skin of their teeth. And it's not inconceivable that we end up with another 50-50 Senate, which I think would be indisputably a major disappointment for Republicans. If you look just at the results, it's a uh, you know not what we wanted to see night. If you look at the potential of what was there, and look, the exit polls told us people were upset about the economy. People were upset about inflation. People were upset, said uh, gas prices were affecting them. Well, you know, The people were not happy with the state of the country. They did not feel like the country was going in the right direction. Biden's approval rating is very low. All of that, under normal circumstances, adds up to a big year for the out party. In a whole bunch of key places, the electorate looked at, you know, we're not happy with Democrats, not happy with Biden, looked at what the Republicans had to offer and said, wow, that looks awful. Let's stick with the Democrats. And that is a major disappointment. That is an absolute colossal failure. And that is just infuriating. Republicans will be kicking themselves over this for quite some time. We'll talk more about the recriminations in the third martini. But I think that's what jumps out of me. It's it's not just so much that they didn't do as well as they hoped. It's the sheer 
scale of the missed opportunities. New Hampshire, you kind of wonder if Chuck Morris had been the Republican nominee instead of Don Bolduc. Pennsylvania, you wonder if Oz, instead of Oz narrowly winning the primary, if McCormick had run, whether he would have done better off. You figure if Mastriano had not been the Republican gubernatorial nominee, would Oz have done, or you know, the Republican Senate candidate have done better? In Arizona, Blake Masters looks like, you know, roadkill. And boy, you know, we had a Republican state attorney general in that race. Somebody who'd already won 51% of the vote in the good Democratic year of 2018. I think maybe he might have done a little better. All across the ballot, it's underperformance, underperformance. Uh, you can see some of this in the House races. Knocking off Spanberger was never going to be easy, but you figured in a you know in a year with the wind at their backs, Republicans should have been able to pull off something like that, and they didn't. This was a pretty dramatic underperformance, and it points to something fundamentally wrong at the Republican Party. We'll talk more about that in the third martini, but I think um, there's going to be Republicans have very good reason to be deeply disappointed with the outcome of this year's midterms. Yeah, and there were some pretty good indicators going into uh, last night about what would a good night, an average night, or a great night look like for the Republicans. And it started right here in Virginia. If Jen Kiggins wins down in the Tidewater in Virginia too, Republicans will probably end up with the House majority. She got it done. If Yesley Vega takes out Abigail Spanberger, you're probably looking at least uh, at a moderate wave. It looked good for Vega for a lot of the night, but as you know, in Virginia, the Democratic strongholds get their votes in, in late, and so that was Prince William County, unfortunately, I'm sad to say, which is my neck of the woods. My one vote in uh, Prince William County didn't didn't make that big of a difference, but uh, Spanberger holds on, and then actually, I think Hung Kao very much overperformed the district, but still fell short by about, uh, last I saw, four or five points, and so at that point, you're looking at Republicans doing probably enough but uh, but not nearly as well as they they had expected because I mean there were there were tweets all over the place about red tsunamis and uh, and uh, other than in certain places like Florida as we'll mention in a moment uh, you know things just did not materialize as we had hoped but we'll have plenty to break down here as we go on but in the end it looks like at the moment Democrats have a better than average shot of holding the Senate and they're going to make. Uh, whoever the speaker is, whether it's Kevin McCarthy or somebody else, make their life pretty darn miserable in the House. But um, if the Republicans do get the majority there, at least they'll be able to stymie uh, the worst parts of the Biden agenda. Anyway, we'll get to uh, the good news here uh, on the governor's side in just a moment. But uh, right now, we want to tell you that we're sponsored by Nutrafol. You don't have to choose between better hair growth and your health. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness. So get ahead of thinning hair with Nutrafol's whole body approach to hair growth. No drugs, no compromises. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement, which is clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. And in a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three months and six months. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support the three martini lunch by going to Nutrafol.com slash men and entering the promo code martini to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. So get $15 off at Nutrafol.com slash men. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, promo code Martini. All right, Jim, that was kind of a broad swath on uh, how badly things went last night for Republicans and their opportunities. There were also some House seats 
they lost, and I'm sorry to see, like Steve Shabbat in Ohio won and some other folks. But let's talk about the good news where we have it. And that certainly started off on a really good note in Florida. We had seen indicators all day long that uh, things were looking good for Ron DeSantis. And boy, did they. Uh, more than a 19-point win over Charlie Crist. Gosh, as I tweeted out last night, if every state could emulate Florida in counting and releasing vote totals, uh, our election nights would be a heck of a lot better. So DeSantis romps. Uh, uh, Also, if the Republicans do win the House, he gets a lot of credit for that because he redrew the congressional map in Florida. And I think we're at least plus four there uh, just in Florida on uh, taking back the House. So if there's a big winner at all uh, last night on the Republican side, it's clearly Ron DeSantis. Another one. Brian Kemp, uh, that polling was pretty much spot on. He wins by uh, roughly eight and a half points. No runoff there. Stacey Abrams actually conceding this time. Beto O'Rourke also losing by double digits in Texas. That's great to see. Greg Abbott winning quite handily there. And uh, But again, a couple of the House races we had hoped to win there not happening. So uh, in the end, Jim, we got rid of the... Uh, the the slimiest uh, statewide Democratic candidates with Chris and Abrams and O'Rourke and and uh, their endless uh, campaigning that did not work out again. So uh, you know you've got uh, the New York Post today with the headline on the front page: "The Future," which I'm sure made someone else in Florida really thrilled. But Ron DeSantis uh, could not have had a better night, and uh, some really good governors are staying put, including the guy we put over the top, John Sununu in New Hampshire. Indeed. Look, the lesson of this is that you should always appear on our podcast <laughs> on those exceptionally rare times we extend an invite. And no, we don't just extend an invite to just anybody. The The scale of what DeSantis did is easily overlooked, in part because people say, ah, oh, you know, Republic, uh, Florida's a Republican state. Yes. But you look back, DeSantis, you know, won by like a half a percentage point in 2018. Rick Scott won twice, but he won by about 1%. Uh, Trump won by three and a half percent in 2020. It's a Republican state, but in the statewide races, usually Republicans win by any, you know anywhere from like half a point to about three points. Well, last night, Ron DeSantis won by almost 20 points. It is a a the sort of the landslide gargantuan win that I think really changes how people look at the state. It definitely makes the argument that the Florida Republican Party, is the most effective one in the country. It is the one that has the best outreach to Latinos and other minority groups. Um, it is just doing everything right. And oh, by the way, let's not ignore the fact that I heard, read a lot of pieces talking about how Val Demings was the candidate who was really going to take it to Marco Rubio. And up, oh, this could be the year Marco Rubio loses. Now, first of all, it's always hard to knock off a two-term incumbent. Rubio won by 16 points. Right. So this is a neighborhood of almost 58% to about 41%. That's a really big win. So this is, you know, and obviously, as you mentioned, the down ticket effects. Look, Florida, I think one of the reasons uh, Republicans may feel a little shell-shocked this morning is, as you mentioned, Florida is the first state that, you know, great at counting the votes. They do it quickly. They do it efficiently. They do it openly and transparently. Um, and even Palm Beach County, by the way, brought it in uh, pretty quickly this year. And you have a situation in which that's usually the first state where you're like, okay, this is where we know is winning. And it was, you know, this wasn't just a red state. This is a crimson state, right? This is about as good a state as Republicans had. So you're a Republican, you're watching last night and you're like, okay, let's have the next one. And you just kept waiting <laughs> for the good news. Now, yeah, you know, we kind of knew Beta O'Rourke was going to lose. We kind of knew, actually, we pretty much knew, you know, Stacey Abrams was going to lose. The margins were nice and healthy, I think. 
you know, Democrats will have to ask themselves hard questions of what do they want to do in these red states in the South? If you want to win, you got probably are going to have to make your peace with nominating a Democrat who is relatively pro-life, relatively pro-gun, like John Bell Edwards in, in uh, Louisiana. I don't see Vanity Fair writing glowing profiles of John Bell Edwards or Vogue or New York Magazine or any of these other Manhattan-based glossy magazines that, you know, gushed over um, O'Rourke and, and Abrams. You know, they, they've spent a, tens of millions of dollars on each one of these bids. And, you know, they they came closer in a good year for Democrats in 2018. Everybody could kind of tell this was going to be a rough cycle for Democrats and states like Georgia and uh, Texas are not easy to win. But they went ahead anyway. They got, you know, uh, you know, just demolished. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were, you know, look, as of this point, looks like Republicans are going to take the House. The Republicans do not appear to have lost the Senate at this point, but it's too early to say whether they've won it. It could have been worse. But as I said in the previous Martini, considering the circumstances, it should have been much, much better. And I think Ron DeSantis stands out as the one guy who li- not just lived up to the hype, exceeded the hype. Uh, listeners probably know that I also do the editor's podcast with my National Review colleagues. My colleague, Charlie Cook, lives down outside Jacksonville. And almost every week I get some version of Jim, Ron DeSantis is going to win by an exceptional margin. I, I think it could be 10 points or 15 points. You know, Charlie's a big fan of Ron DeSantis. Doesn't agree with everything he does, but he's, he's basically been saying, oh yeah, DeSantis is going to win big. And DeSantis somehow figured out how to exceed even Charlie's high expectations. <laughs> yeah. Those of us in Virginia, look, young kids looking pretty good, but it's very easy to be envious of uh, people in Florida for their governor these days. Yeah. And I think DeSantis, Kemp, Sununu, Abbott. I mean, uh, part of it is the fact that they can articulate a good message. But the other part is, is they've got a really good record uh, on virtually every issue that matters to not only conservatives, but, you know, rational people in the middle, whatever percentage that still makes up of the electorate. And so, I mean, Ron DeSantis did a bunch of common sense things that had a wide swath of approval early on in his administration. And then things got a little more polarized once COVID arrived and and some other issues. And we got closer to Election Day, but uh, he got off to a great start. And I think that uh, had the goodwill of the people. And I think they certainly uh, enjoyed opening up sooner than other states as well. Every governor's race that the Republicans won was a blowout. Everyone that uh, was a little bit tight uh, was one that uh, they came up a little bit short. So we still have outstanding governor's races as well in a couple different places, Nevada and Arizona being uh, two of them, and then Alaska with its crazy ranked choice uh, situation uh, coming as well. But uh, on a very disappointing night, uh, there were a few bright stars, and I think it's good that we call them out. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And this is the one that uh, always happens whenever a party underperforms. Now, as we've said, if Republicans do in fact win the House and find a way to take the Senate, I think that's a bit of a hill too far to climb, but but it's still possible. So we'll see. But still, uh, the postmortem has begun and there's a long list of reasons that I've already seen on Twitter for why the Republicans did not have a red wave or a red tsunami. And so here they are, in not any particular order, but slightly prioritized. First of all, there's candidate quality. Ended up nominating people who weren't a great fit for the district or the state. Uh, some people say that's Trump's fault because he picked people who were loyal to him rather than had the best chance of winning. Other people say, well, that's true, but the people actually had to vote for those people. So the, the people who showed up and voted in the primaries deserve some blame for that. Others would say that the Democrats have really hone their ground game. Now that they have several weeks to cajole people to get to the polls, whether it's early voting or absentees, 
they're doing a better job of turning out their people. And the Republicans have got to get away from only voting on Election Day and pushing people to the polls before that. Another thing that was very disappointing is that basically just about every Republican that the Democrats helped to get nominated, who they thought was a threat to democracy, ended up losing. So the Democratic uh, primary interference on the Republican side seemed to work. Others say that uh, abortion became a bigger factor than we than we thought. Uh, then there was the big infighting over whether where Mitch McConnell spent his Senate money. So, uh, Jim, there's lots of potential there of uh, possible excuses, some perhaps more plausible than others. What stands out to you? Well, Greg, the first thing is like, you know, after a night like this, there should be some recrimination. There could be there should be some uh, really tough minded evaluation of what the party did and why things did not turn out as well as they hoped or as well as they expected. And, you know, it's very hard to just, you know, dismiss the idea of candidate quality. Exit polls indicated that, you know, lots of voters at the end cared about Oz not being from Pennsylvania or not having enough deep enough roots in Pennsylvania. You can say to the voters, oh, that shouldn't matter. But if they decide it matters, then it matters. There are a bunch of cases where, as I've been looking at this all morning, you know, McCormick would probably wouldn't have had that problem. Morse in New Hampshire instead of Don Boldick probably would have been a stronger, more mainstream choice who could have run closer to Sununu. Mark Brnovich, the state attorney general in Arizona, probably would have done better than Blake Masters. You can go through this in in state after state. One of the few exceptions I would point out is that I wouldn't blame Trump for Herschel Walker. Uh, I think Herschel Walker won the 2022 Republican Senate primary back in the early 80s when he won the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> I think being a very famous and beloved football star probably always was going to give him the advantage there. But yeah, I mean, look, this somebody pointed out, you know, if Pat Toomey runs for re-election, Republicans hold that seat. If Sununu, instead of running for re-election as governor, chose to run for Senate, he had a really good shot of knocking off Maggie Hassan. Um, if uh, departing Arizona Governor Doug Ducey chose to run for Senate, he probably would have beaten Mark Kelly. So the, so the observation from Rich is that you didn't get your first choice because they've decided they're they're t- they've done enough in politics. They aren't really excited about you know continuing in an era where you know Trump can just you know try to destroy them in a Twitter tirade. I guess not a Twitter tirade, Truth Social tirade or something like that. So they don't want to spend their time in the Senate where you know they're just voting for omnibus bills and judiciary nominations for the rest of their lives. So you don't have them. And then you have candidates who might be more competitive, but Trump doesn't like them or not loyal enough to Trump. So they don't win the Republican primary. So now you're on your third choice. And that's how you end up botching very winnable years. Um, This is, you know, beyond that, I I do kind of wonder, one of the more ominous things I heard last night is that, look, we've seen a lot of internal fights at very low level uh, Republican Party uh, levels, you know, who, who's your county party chairs and your local party members and stuff like that. And, you know, the Trump the, the Trump fans chased out the establishment. Well, the establishment had been there for a long time, but the, the establishment also knew how to do the basic blocking and tackling of politics, how to get out the vote, et cetera. And you had a bunch of amateurs in there in these positions this cycle. If that's the case, that's really troubling. I don't think you can say that's the case everywhere, but I think it's good to audit. I think it's good to take a look at, all right, why do we, if, if we didn't hit our turnout markers, if we didn't bring out the vote we expected to, particularly in a political environment like this, what went wrong? Why did we not do that? And is it, was it candidate quality? Was it something else? Was there, because the, the, what's so frustrating about this is that, yes, the electorate was there to say, we don't like what Democrats are doing. 
but they couldn't bring themselves to vote for the Republicans. And that's an indication that something is terribly wrong. I think you're going to see a lot of criminations. I think a lot of this is going to turn into uh, very early speculation of Trump versus DeSantis. And I mean, to me, I think the advantage, you know, I think of the two, I think it's pretty clear who's stronger right now. But I think it still means, you know, if you can imagine a scenario where this election rebounds well to the Republicans. If it gets Republicans to recognize the limitations of Trump's appeal and choose to move on. And let me point out, there is a Republican state delegate in Virginia, Anderson, who just, uh, I just posted a corner post on him, uh, who basically has been, you know, about as, as pro-Trump as you could possibly expect for a long time, who basically said, you know what, here in Virginia, every time Trump's been on the ballot, we've lost them. The moment Trump was off the ballot, we gained seats. He's basically saying, Republicans, it's time for us to move on and look at other options. This is a guy who is very sympathetic to Trump. He is not some, it's not Liz Cheney, it's not Kinzinger, it's not some knee-jerk guy. And he's not saying, I hate Trump. He's not saying, go, you know, Trump's terrible. He's saying, it's time for Republicans to move on, look at other options. I That strikes me as really reasonable. And he's looking at the evidence based in his home state of Virginia. So we'll see how Republicans shake out from all this. Um, I think that we it's a conceivable if this ends up with, you know, Biden saying, oh, I'm doing terrific, and Biden chooses to run for another term, and the Republicans nominate, say, Ron DeSantis against him, you could see this working out very well for Republicans. But it depends very highly on learning the right lessons from, you know, the utterly disappointing results of last night. Yeah, you bring up a good point, Jim, because the uh, media consensus now, and, and a lot of folks on uh, certainly on the right, but I think even more on the left, uh, suggest that because this wasn't a bloodbath, that this strengthens Biden's effort to run for re-election. We talked yesterday about whether he was shovable. He probably still is. But how much does this change the dynamic now about how the party's thinking about this if Biden's ridiculously horrible record over the past two years didn't hurt the party that much? Yeah. I mean, if, if Republicans had won 30 to 40 House seats and look, we were looking at a 54 or 46 Senate, then yeah, Joe Biden, I think, would be toast. If being 80 years old wasn't enough, if being unpopular wasn't enough, if having a bad midterm wasn't enough, there's also you know quite a few economists who think we're in for a recession in 2023. All of that together would make it just about impossible for Joe Biden to run for re-election. But now he dodged the bullet on the bad midterm. Now all of a sudden he can say, hey, compared to Obama, compared to the historical pattern, these midterms aren't so bad for Democrats. And he has a point. Uh, I don't think he can take that much credit for it. I mean, think about where he was campaigning and how much, you know, Democrats weren't sending him to Ohio. Democrats weren't sending him to uh, Arizona or any of those really competitive races. Uh, but nonetheless, he, you know, was not that much of a weight amongst Democrats. They could not win a bunch of these key races here. So he's going to be smiling today. And, I, you know, I don't like saying it, but he's earned it. This is this this is really not so bad considering what everybody was expecting. So, you know, I think Biden's going to say, yes, you need me, you know, Democrats. Um, I think Kamala Harris might be a little disappointed by how this is shaking out. I think Gavin Newsom might be kicking the cat today. Uh, we'll see how it shakes out. But I, I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, this makes the odds of Biden being on the ticket in 2024 much, much higher. No, I think you're right. <laughs> a couple of things that were funny about that, because I don't know if you saw the report yesterday, but Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, apparently had been telling people that it was imperative for the party to get behind her, get behind Kamala, assuming that Biden would have run again. So, <laughs> so now that equation seems to be uh, yeah, I mean, we've been We've that. been joking about how little appeal she has, but let's give credit, uh, Greg. She, she's got the support of her husband. <laughs> That's one. Yep. That's one. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, he's probably the more beatable candidate, depending on who else they, they would have put out there. So if they are going to shove him, 
it's going to be a harder case to make now. So uh, it's not just uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, soul searching on the on the GOP side. There's a little bit to go on the Democrats as well. But hopefully we have more good news as the week goes on here. And uh, that we do know that the Republicans end up holding the House and somehow scratch out a majority in the Senate. Uh, thanks to Ron Johnson's win, though, they've got at least 49, which means they're not going to kill the filibuster, uh, even if they were to somehow take the House. So uh, we can at least rest assured on that, I think. Jim, uh, you planned the next two days off, which was brilliant in the first place. But after these results, it's exceedingly brilliant. So enjoy your time off and I'll see you on Monday. Greg, mentally, I'm already gone. See you Monday. <laughs> Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thanks also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep them coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Buy Jim's new novel, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Wednesday. And even though Jim's gone, be sure to join us again tomorrow on the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour, when the dust settled back in 2020, it became clear that Hispanics were shifting towards the Republican Party in ways that were not marginal and in ways that were wildly underappreciated by the legacy news media and that were really going to change American politics. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.